Welcome to the Classics Podcast Does Ancient History A-Level, brought to you by the Classical Association. Today, I'm delighted to be chatting to Dr. Rosie Wiles of Kent University, who is an expert on Aristophanes and is going to be talking to us about the many and various Aristophanes passages which come up on the Ancient History A-Level syllabus. So there are a few important passages that come up in the period study for all candidates. And then if you're doing the Sparta depth study, there are one or two uh, passages from Lysistrata. If you are doing the Athens depth study, there's a whole medley of different bits of Aristophanes, which we're going to be discussing. So Rosie, welcome. Uh, it's great to have you on the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your work with Aristophanes. Thank you. Uh, Aristophanes, I probably first encountered when I was studying classics at university and since then it's become a little bit of a habit I you know you read one and you want to read more and I certainly had to get into it when I was researching tragedy and interested in tragic costume because there's so much where Aristophanes is responding to tragedy since then my research has taken me to look at the way in which drama reacts with society and again Aristophanes was very prominent in that. And it's something I also teach for my undergraduates. I do a course which looks at Aristophanes and thinks about what it can tell us about the history of the period and vice versa, how the historical context makes the drama so enjoyable. Well, thank you. And I think that gets right to our point here is that we are aware perhaps that these plays are great works of art and to be uh, entertaining and enjoyed. But for this syllabus, for the Ancient History A-Level, what we really want to know is how can they enlighten us about what's going on with the politics and the society of, of today? And so that's what our focus will be. Let's just start, though, a little bit with the, the background of that theatre context, if those who go on and do the Athens Depth Study will learn more about this. But the theatre culture in, in ancient Athens was quite different from ours, and I think you didn't just go to the theatre when you felt like it. Uh, as we might do, but there was a particular context. So tell us about that. Absolutely. So you would most likely go and see these productions of Aristophanes at one of two major festivals in Athens, either the Linnea, which was held in January and was, if you like, a home audience, just the Athenians, because people can't sail in that, um, in that month, or the city Dionysia or Great Dionysia. Both names refer to the same festival. And... That was held in March, and that's a much bigger occasion. It, it involves those from outside of Athens. They come as part of the audience. Once Athens has its empire, it's their opportunity to bring tribute. So these are both religious occasions celebrating the god Dionysus, but they're also civic occasions, and they're framed in that way to celebrate the city, to celebrate its achievements. And we can see in both the tragedies and comedies that they engage really closely with some of the concerns and preoccupations at the time. Okay, thank you. So maybe tell us a little bit about the size of the audience and the, the element of competition. These playwrights were writing to win. And I think we're, we're talking about an audience much larger than we would find in a theatre today. That, that's absolutely right. So it's a matter of guesswork for academics for how big that audience was, because the stone remains that we have for the Theatre of Dionysus in Athens are from a later period. In the 5th century, the audience would have been sitting on wooden benches up the side of the hill beneath the Acropolis. 
And so in terms of how big it might have been, I think a really safe guess is 10,000, which is really absolutely mind-blowing when we think about it as an audience size in a standard auditorium for a theatre, you might think of a thousand. So you've got to think a bit more in terms of maybe going to a music festival, maybe going to a concert where you've got a really decent audience there. Thank you. And I think I'd be right in saying that the vast majority of the audience would be Athenian male citizens. And that's really important because if Aristophanes is trying to make them laugh about public matters, the affairs of the state, then he's got to know what's going on and what their concerns are. This is a, a huge cross-section of the Athenian citizen body that we're talking about. Yes, I think it's helpful to think of that as being the target audience. So the evidence leaves it open to make a case for women being present in the audience, and it depends who you read on this. So if you read Simon Goldhill, the scholar, he'll argue that this was a civic occasion primarily, so we should think of a male audience. If you want to make a case for women being present, then look at Henderson's work and he will make the case that, well, it's a religious festival, so they may have been involved. Irrespective of whether you think women were there, it is still, I think, helpful to think of the audience that Aristophanes has in mind as the male citizen body in Athens, as the, um, the prime audience in mind when he's targeting, pitching his work. Um, and and that's, that is really important in terms of assessing attitudes he might be reflecting or attitudes he might be parodied in his works. So I think it's worth mentioning that we only have Aristophanes plays left, but he was one of many. He was perhaps considered in the ancient world the best, which is why his plays have survived. But we know the names and sometimes the titles of, of lots and lots of other playwrights, don't we? And tell us a little bit about that. So increasingly there's work now uh, with research being done on what remains as comic fragments from other comic playwrights. So when we talk about Attic comedy, fifth century comedy produced in Athens, it absolutely isn't just Aristophanes. And Aristophanes' own work gives away that rivalry that you mentioned, you know, as a competition, he's up against other comic playwrights, he's defining himself against those comic playwrights. And we have traces of that rivalry, traces of the identity that these playwrights are putting across in their works in, Aristophanes' own comedies. Um, and, and also, of course, you can go off and look at the fragments. And, you know, those are more accessible now as they're in translation. And you can start to get a sense, even from the play titles, of actually the range of comedy that's being produced. And so I, I think when we're talking about Aristophanes as a source, and when we're thinking about comic style and comic implications, you have to think of this as Aristophanic comedy rather than generalising as attic comedy. I think that's quite a, a useful way of handling that, acknowledging that, okay, there, there are other comic playwrights, um, but we're thinking about what Aristophanes is doing and how he is responding to his culture around him and you know, transforming it or not in his comedies. Thank you. And then I think before we dive into those sources, we should probably just say when he is writing his play. So I think the first recorded play we know of by Aristophanes is in 427, but the first one that survives is 425, the Acarnians, which we'll talk about 
in a moment. And then he goes all the way down to the 380s, which goes beyond our period study, which cuts off in, in 404. So he's there for those last 20 years or so of our period study. I guess he's obviously then writing a lot during the period of the Peloponnesian War, and he reflects a lot on that in his plays. I guess the final question then is, how can we approach him as a source for ancient history? To what extent is he just massively exaggerating? To what extent can we say there must be some truth in this? I think we approach him as any source, as any historical source. Every single piece of evidence that survives from the ancient world needs to be assessed and you have to understand uh, what the critical issues with it might be. With Aristophanes, we have to take into account that it's comedy. We have to understand there may be distortion, there may be exaggeration, and there may be even his own, of course, personal bias. But those issues with it as evidence could equally apply if we were looking at a historian like Thucydides. It's only that um, with Aristophanes, the difficulties with it as evidence is perhaps more evident. I think with Thucydides, part of what is really tricky is it looks like it's absolutely reliable. It looks like there wouldn't be anything missed out. It looks like there wouldn't be anything distorted. And uh, that's not the case. So uh, they offer different things as evidence. We can't go to Aristophanes thinking we're going to get the same sort of evidence as we might get from Thucydides. Uh, but just because there's comic exaggeration, it doesn't mean that this is less valuable as evidence. Uh, maybe you have to work a little bit harder to extract what we can learn about society from it because of those questions that are, are a matter of judgment, such as uh, how much is this exaggerated? Is it funny because it's extremely far from the truth or is it funny because actually it hits home? Um, and so that's the sort of balancing act that would apply to any kind of evidence. And I, I actually think Aristophanes is some of the very best evidence that we have for fifth century politics. That's really interesting to hear and, and to get students thinking that actually you probably need to be just as careful with Thucydides as Aristophanes. I think students are used to the idea that you have to be careful with Aristophanes, but you also have to be careful with all the other sources as well. Okay, well, let's dive in then. So we're going to start by looking at the prescribed sources in the period study. Uh, and the first one is just a, sh a short section of about 10 lines from early on in Akarnians. And this is the start of Akarnians is about this character, Dikaiopolis, who's fed up with the war. The play is set in 425. And at the assembly that day, he wants to put a proposal to make peace with the Spartans. But before he can get up and speak, we have various other things going on, including this parody of a Persian embassy or an embassy coming from Persia. So tell us a little bit about what's going on here and what we might be able to uh, infer from it. So we have an envoy coming back and reporting on this trip to Persia. And there, there are a number of aspects here where you can tell there's some exaggeration going on. So this envoy comes back and he says, well, you remember you sent us off 11 years ago, right? So you're meant to imagine that had they been paid for all of that time and Dikaiopolis is reacting to the, the sense that, you know, it's a little bit like um, expenses scandals now, the sense that, that there's someone just taking advantage, spending all the public money. And actually it sounds like 
having a pretty nice time, but all of it is presented as though it's hardship, like, oh, it was awful. We had to lie down on soft beds when we were going there. Um, we had to drink wine. And meanwhile, Dikaopolis is reflecting on his situation, how um, terrible his conditions are living in the city. So I think there's a nice insight here to, or useful insight here to the potential disparity within the democracy. You know, democracy where you apparently all have the same opportunity. And here is the sort of us and them attitude of Dick Arfliss, that th these people have had this opportunity to go off and have, a, have themselves a good time. I mean, in terms of what it might tell us in terms for the political situation at the time, it might be initially surprising to people who could think about the rhetoric around Persia being the old enemy, that we've got an envoy going over to Persia, but actually we have evidence that both Sparta and Athens were sending people to Persia to try to potentially form an alliance, potentially get some funding for their side of the war, right? So um, we can look to other sources for this. We can look to, uh, there's a passage in Thucydides, isn't there, in book four, uh, section 50, chapter 50, where you have Art of Fermes being caught. He's on his way to report to Sparta. He's come from Persia to report to Sparta, and he gets intercepted by the Athenians, who then, after they found out what he was going to say to Sparta, and it's clear that there are some negotiations going on, try to take advantage of the situation and actually send him back with some of their own envoys. Um, so we do know that this isn't just coming out of nowhere in Aristophanes. Yeah, I think that's very interesting, isn't it? That typically Thucydides says very little about what's going on with the Persians yeah. in his history. He's very interested in uh, the Athenians and the Spartans and their power blocks. But we do get this little quote uh, or this little section in Thucydides, which is a prescribed source, 450, saying that both the Athenians and the Spartans essentially were, were having back channels to the Persians. And of course, in the end, it's the Spartans who end up winning the war because they get Persian funding. Thucydides doesn't give this any airtime really in this history, apart from this reference, one or two others. But then we get this play in 425, which is also talking about Athenian contact with Persia. So we, we have this sense that there's always this dialogue going on between Persia uh, and Sparta and Athens individually, and that the Persians remain a really key player. And I think there's something else going on here as well in acknowledging that maybe latent anxiety about medizing. So medizing is this serious political uh, allegation you can make about um, someone maybe being too sympathetic with the Persians and giving way to their customs. We know it was taken seriously because, again, Thucydides has a whole excursus on it about the fate of Themistocles and Pausanias. This is at the end of his uh, first book in his histories. So it could have really serious consequences. It could lead to exile. What you have here, and this is quite typical of Aristophanes, is you take something serious and you make it so ridiculous that we're all reassured, right? So here's this envoy, he comes back, he's in this outlandish out, outfit. We know that from Dick Arpler saying, whoa, what a get up. Um, and we hear about how these envoys have been engaging in per Persian customs, but because it's comedy, nothing bad comes of that. We just acknowledge that this is a, 
something that might happen, but it becomes something funny in a comedy. And that's quite an important way of understanding how Aristophanes works as a source, that you understand what might be a cultural concern at the time, but we, we're going to have it diffused within the setting so that something that is serious actually is presented as though it's not really a problem. That's great, thank you. Um, well, let's move to the next prescribed source for the period study, and this is a, a big one, really. Um, Akarnian, same play, 524 to 539. It's in the middle of a speech by Dicaeopolis. And this is all about Aspasia and the Megarian decree. There's a lot that we could unwrap here, uh, mm -hmm. but for our students who are thinking about the causes of the Peloponnesian War, that's our second interpretation question. This is a really key source. So maybe t tell us a little bit about the, the context of the speech that Dicaeopolis is making, and then what he specifically jokerly says is the cause of the Peloponnesian War, and then we'll think about how much, what we can read into that. Right, yeah, so uh, as you say, there's a lot to unpack here, and partly that's because of the interweaving of the poetic with the political in this section. And while we're, we're focused on thinking about what this can tell us in terms of politics and what's going on in Athens, at the same time, you can't quite escape the way in which it's framed within this part of the play. So Dick Arpless is making a speech in defence of the Spartans. And he does this dressed up as um, a character from one of Euripides' plays. So Euripides, the tragic playwright, wrote Atelophus, in which, and it's fragmentary now, but we know that the, the character made a defense speech on behalf of the enemy, right? And so that's the, the sort of premise for this, that he's dressed up, he's borrowed the costume, it's all very elaborate, but then you get to the speech itself and it becomes, of course, very, very contemporary. I mean, it's almost got a feeling of a parabasis here. That is um, those sections where the chorus sort of step aside from their characters for a moment and speak almost directly to the audience about contemporary affairs. Now we have Dicarpolis, the protagonist, doing something similar here and almost speaking as though he's Aristophanes. So that gives us pause for thought, right? Are we going to get a very serious analysis here of the causes of the Peloponnesian War and the way in which it's not entirely the Spartans to blame and Athens have their own part to play. But then what he goes on to say is, um, well, we, we, we can unwrap in a moment how um, contentious that might be, that he says, in fact, the cause of everything really is the Megarian decree and that actually the Megarian decree comes about because of a bit of women snatching, um, and it all comes down to Pericles and Aspasia, right? So uh, Pericles, the leading politician at the time of the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, and his mistress, Aspasia, who has a reputation of um, having, in effect, a brothel. Um, and so this, is this serious? Can this be serious? That actually this, this comes down to, in fact, the sort of personal concerns of Pericles rather than these sort of much grander complex reasons that we get in, you know, in Thucydides. So yeah, so the, the logic of this argument, if we're going to take it seriously, which we're probably not, but the logic of this argument is, is as follows. The play says, 
are, they said, Megarian contraband. This is talking about uh, Athenians who were trying to catch people who were disobeying the Megarian decree. And it goes on, well, that was minor, just our national sport, as you might say. But then some young chaps got drunk and for a laugh went to Megara and kidnapped their tart, Semitha. So that is a theft of a Megarian woman by Athenians. Well, this raised the Megarian's hackles and they stole two of Aspasia's girls in retaliation, meaning the prostitutes that she has in her supposed brothel. And that gentleman was the cause of the war that has been raging throughout Greece these six years. It was all on account of three prostitutes because Pericles, Olympian Pericles, sent out thunder and lightning and threw all Greece into confusion. So uh, essentially the idea is that the Peloponnesian War started not for any grand geopolitical reasons, as you say, Rosie, but simply because Pericles, his, his consort, his common law wife, Aspasia, was put out by the theft of two of her working girls. Goodness me, what, how do we even start trying to interpret this as historians? Well, I think we might want to think about Herodotus and think about the way in which his histories begin with, in fact, not a dissimilar setup where actually wars begin because of snatching girls, right? In the same way that you can make that reductionist argument about why the um, Trojan War happened. Right, because of Helen. So uh, if we think about that and think about that as a sort of filter, I'm not sure that it makes this more or less credible because it makes it playful, certainly, and it's engaging with um, a historian. And yet, of course, that sort of distances it because it becomes some, some sort of potentially literary game where you, you have Dekarthus, you know, trotting out this analysis and it's also very much in the comic frame to say that this is all down to, to women and all down to not just women, but down to a bunch of prostitutes. This is the, the cause of, of all the, the trouble. Um, I think part of what we're wrestling with here is the wider historical question of what we make of the Megarian decree. And that is really contentious within the scholarship still, how, of how serious that was. And so when we're trying to analyze, for example, the later passage in this play, where there's a Megarian who is so, so poor that he has to sell his own daughters, are we meant to be sympathetic? Is that a serious comment from Aristophanes? Or, you know, again, is it having a bit of fun with the, the sorts of things that people might say, you know, the sorts of exaggerations people might be making about, well, it was all down to the, you know, the simplistic oh, well, it's all down to the Megarian decree. Um, and so I think those are the sorts of factors you'd want to take into account. I, I mean, trying to, I, I don't think you can solve this. Um, and I think it's a mistake in general to expect to sort of get the answer from a historical source. I think what you can do is weigh it up and see what you can unpack from it and make a more or less plausible case in terms of what, what you're unpacking from it. Because it would come down to the question of, is this a parody of an overly simplistic view that people are actually expressing in Athens? Is, it, is there an element of fantasy where it could be that simple 
that you know this war isn't complicated actually it's it's very very simple it's only because of this um Pericles trying to do the right thing for Aspasia or is this Aristophanes trying to present this sort of serious challenge to an alternative narrative which says it is really complicated and saying no 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 this isn't complicated this is something we can solve because actually it started from something simple and, and so you know those are your choices I think when you're looking at it and it, it's you know it's up to us to make the compelling argument. That's very interesting and I think a couple of things also to throw in the first thing is that this play is produced in 45 so that's six years after the war has started and four years after the death of Pericles so he, you know he's been mm -hmm. dead for a while and they're still saying or Aristophanes is still presenting this view oh it was all uh, Pericles and then secondly uh, in the biography of Pericles by Plutarch uh, I think sections 30 to 32 Plutarch actually says that that the most commonly held view for why Pericles didn't want to rescind the Megarian decree was that he had a lot of political troubles going on at home uh, mm -hmm. his allies including Aspasia, Aspasia, Anaxagoras I think uh, and Phidias were all being prosecuted for different things or being exiled in Anaxagoras's case and so going to war by using the Megarian decree was a way for him to escape political troubles at home to divert attention and of course uh, we know from our history subsequently that, that that is sadly a familiar pattern isn't it that particularly uh, leaders, you know, powerful leaders, uh, like to use war to divert from problems at home. Yes, and I think that's so helpful to have those other sources as a way of shoring up an analysis of what Aristophanes is up to here. And really importantly, we're getting a corrective to Thucydides again, um, where, you know, if you read only Thucydides, You'd have such a different view on Pericles um, and that there's only the smallest hint actually I think in Thucydides where that policy of bringing everyone inside the city and there's resistance to it and Thucydides does admit you know that there is this resistance there is this group who want to go out and fight and um, then Pericles is able to smooth it over and he denies them the right to express their view in then assembly so that you know that there, there's some strategizing there there's some manipulation and i think it's interesting as you say six years on as this play is really engaged with that idea of being stuck in the city and watching the spartans invade the land around athens and destroy your vines and thinking about you know what that does in terms of mentality and it might be helpful to think of, about maybe a split in terms of when we think about the audience and the target audience and uh, your male Athenian citizen, you know, there's a, a split potentially in the, the demographic there and how this might play out to different sectors in the audience, whether your elite citizen who has always lived in Athens in the city itself might feel differently, for example, compared to those who have come in from the countryside. Okay, and actually that discussion of the Megarian decree takes us nicely into the sections from peace. Now, the prescribed sections for peace are 619 to 622 and then 639 to 648. But I, actually, I would like to look at the whole section 601 to 648. I'll explain why in a moment. 
Before we talk about those sections, though, let's just say something about the piece. It's produced, I think, at the City Dionysia of 421, and it anticipates the piece of Nikias, which is also part of our course. It's the end of time span four. So it's a play which almost celebrates the coming of peace after 10 years of war. Tell us a little bit about the plot of this play, because it's quite fun, Rosie, isn't it? It, it's great fun um, that you've got your comic hero going up to the heavens, flying up to the heavens in, a, you know, again, a parody of tragedy, but that's a story for another day, going up to the heavens to uh, retrieve peace, the personification of peace, the goddess peace, um, and to, to restore peace amongst the Greeks. So you have some magnificent staging and some wonderful passages to pick from in terms of thinking about attitudes in Athens, thinking about attitudes towards war. But this bit is all about, again, thinking about the causes of war at the point at which, you know, you're then, you peace is in sight. Thank you. Yeah. So if we actually, we're going to start at, I think, line 601. And I would encourage students and teachers to read this whole section from 601 to 648. And our hero is Trigaius. And at this point in the play, he's gone up to the heavens and he meets Hermes, is that correct? Yeah. The, the messenger god. And uh, in that early speech of Hermes at the start of that section, he actually says, I'm reading from a Perseus translation here, the start of our misfortunes was the exile of Phidias, a very close associate of Pericles. And again, someone mentioned by Plutarch. Pericles feared he might share his ill luck he mistrusted your peevish nature, that's talking to the Athenian people, and to prevent all danger to himself, he threw out that little spark, the Megarian decree, set the city aflame and blew up the conflagration with a hurricane of war, so that the smoke drew tears from all Greeks both here and over there. At the very outset of this fire, our vines were a crackle, our casks knocked together, it was beyond the power of any man to stop the disaster, and peace disappeared. And then Trigaius replies, that by Apollo is what no one ever told me. I could not think what connection there could be between Phidias and peace. So again, we get exactly the same view expressed, don't we, in uh, 421, four years after Arconians, that the cause of the war was the Megarian decree, which was a, a way for Pericles to divert attention away from his own political troubles at home. Exactly. And it's helpful to have it not only stated again, but also stated in slightly different terms here, so that we have another member of Pericles' inner circle coming into the frame. So this is not just a story about Pericles and his mistress. It becomes actually a story about Pericles and his associates. And you have this sort of sense of this inside politics that is motivating those decisions. And that is you know, as I've hinted, a very, very different view from Thucydides, who sees Pericles as acting from the best possible motivations and intentions, and for always putting the city first, rather than, you know, in his model, it's the later demagogues who put personal gain first, and that's part of why, of course, everything, according to Thucydides, goes wrong. But here we have, in 41 BC, you know, so that, that idea is out there. And okay, Tregaius says, well, I never figured that out. Um, but I think we have to think of this in terms of Aristophanes expressing something that people are saying, or that people have said, and that that idea is out there. And, and of course, 10 years in, 
you have space and distance from that uh, original uh, moment of war, the conflict beginning, to actually be able to analyse. And at least to, to come up with a narrative. I mean, who knows whether, it, 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 in a way, it doesn't matter how accurate this is. It's about what people think happened and why people think that these things happen, you know, attitudes towards the war rather than trying to get to some kind of truth about that. Thank you. And then if we move on in that section, the, the two prescribed sections, so 619 to 622, and then 639 to 648. What we've got there, I think, is uh, a description of how the allied cities are looking to revolt. So uh, the, the Athenian allied cities are looking to make deals with Sparta. And, and of course, again, he's reflecting on how the Archidami in the first 10 years of the Peloponnesian War, the Archidamian War, has evolved. So we get allied cities wanting to revolt. Um, and in particular, in the section 639 onwards, uh, we get mention of Brasidas. And so at this point, candidates, I'm sure, will remember Brasidas is the Spartan who's sent up to fight and make ground in the northern Aegean, in the Thracewood region. And we get uh, a description here of uh, some of the cities up there who go over to Brasidas because they're so fed up of being part of the Athenian Empire. Yes, and this is part of why it's possible to have peace in 421 BC because of the death of both Theon and Brasidas in 422 BC with, uh, you know, in that really strategically important city of Amphipolis up in the north region. So uh, I, I think Brasidas is another key player here. And it's important as well to appreciate the way in which actually both sides are using slogans. Um, you know, so Brasidas using... That, that slogan of liberation for those allies of Athens. And then on the other side, you can see, at least according to this speech, the way in which demagogues are taking advantage of uh, Brasidas's operations to uh, lay these allegations against rich allies um, and, you know, to, to extort further funds. Uh, so, you know, there, there's all sorts of politics at play in the Peloponnesian War, in, in the different phases of it. And we should say that the reference to the Tanner there um, at the end of that section, uh, that is the one and only Cleon, isn't it? Um, oh, that was cool. how uh, Aristophanes uh, often referred to him because his dad, I think, owned a tanning factory and that's where they made their money. So he's always making jokes about leather and tanning and stuff, isn't he? Yes, and he gives himself away a bit with that, I think, in terms of being aristocratic himself you know there there is that uh, sort of snobbery in his treatment of Cleon and how far that reflects the way in which the people of Athens thought about Cleon and how far it was you know just a joke on the part of Aristophanes is, is something to take into account. And I think it's interesting isn't it that this reflects much more Thucydides version of Cleon we've said that the sections talking about Pericles seem to be giving a quite different image of Pericles than Thucydides does. We know that Thucydides loves Pericles. But here we get a very similar picture of this kind of warmonger in peace, Cleon being a warmonger, uh, as we do in the pages of Thucydides. Yes, yeah, so they, they align quite quite neatly, the, the two of them, and that whole idea of, of Cleon being 
violent and influential over the people. And that's how Thucydides puts it when he first introduces Cleon in, in his works. And uh, that's absolutely what we get from Aristophanes as well. Okay, Rosie, thank you so much. That's been a really interesting way of looking at the period study sources for Aristophanes. And we will do a, a second part to this podcast, which will be looking at the depth study sources. But for now, thank you very much. Thank you. Make sure you follow the Classics podcast on Spotify so that you'll be the first to hear about each new episode. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you follow us on Instagram at The Classical Pod. For bonus materials, check out our website, classicalassociation.org forward slash podcast.